Welcome to The Marketer's Journey, a podcast that delivers real conversations and fresh perspectives from senior marketing executives who share the journey they've taken and the buyer journey they create. And now here's your host, Randy Frisch. Welcome to The Marketer's Journey. Today I've got Anna Griffin. She's the CMO at Smartsheet and Smartsheet is a company that's on fire. We've heard so much about this company growing and making it easier for us to work and collaborate together. And, and there's actually a theme, I think, from what Smartsheet does to who Anna is. And I think you're going to love her. She gives an analogy today. And many of you who know me know I love analogies. So she talks about as marketers, we're often trying to think about things in swim lanes or we stay in our lane, whether that's our buyer or whether that's us as a team. But the reality is when we're most creative, when kids come out, as she puts it, you know, all the swim lanes go up and everyone goes wherever they want. And that's when the most fun happens. It's a great analogy. And we can build on that in so many ways as we think about how we have to start to work together, how we have to get our MarTech to work together and how we have to let our buyers go wherever they want. Today's episode really digs into these ideas, both in terms of how you lead as a CMO and ultimately how you chart a buyer journey that is going to be natural. Here's my combo with Anna. Anna, thank you so much for finding time to chat with us. I'm very excited to unpack your career and you are at a very exciting company in Smartsheet. Amazing growth, amazing opportunity, very disruptive. How did you land this opportunity? Ah, well, first of all, thanks for having me, Randy. And thank you for wanting to talk about uh, Smartsheet. I agree. It's um, super disruptive, relevant, and to your point, you're growing at rapid speed. And um, I think how I found my role at Smartsheet really comes from that, you know, that um, that notion of, you know, being in, I had previously been in big, large enterprises with all of their big, large tops down tools and platforms, and you will work with this. And this is how we will <laughs> communicate and share documents. And, and, and honestly, I think these tools would switch out like every year or every two years, because the reality was nobody was using the tools. It was interesting. I'd been thinking a lot about that. Like, well, why did we stand up that? And I can't stand that. And, and in the marketing world, I'm going to go buy my own tool and we're going to go communicate this way and this way. And so what was interesting was, um, I had not personally used Smartsheet at, at this point, but when somebody uh, reached out to me about this company Smartsheet, I was like, oh my gosh, Eureka, like, wait a minute, they can do that? You know, nobody's working in this way. We're so used to being told these are the tools that you're going to have to execute your work, manage your work, re report on your work, and just how you're going to keep up with your work. That was almost 40% of our day instead of actually you know, doing and thinking and, and dreaming on the work. So when I heard about Smartsheet, I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Somebody can solve that? That's brilliant because let's go back to, to the thinking part of our work instead of the, the managing, reporting, and keeping everybody in the know part, part of our work. And so um, I, I love the notion of Smartsheet uh, instantly. And then um, uh, honestly, I started meeting with the team and then using the product and it's very easy to love um, uh, uh, Smartsheet. That's great. And and to your point, I mean, everyone loves just to execute, right? You know, we, we all get stuck in the weeds, but I've spoken to so many leaders even who end up leaving other companies because they weren't able to execute anymore. They wanted to get back to executing. So I think this 
this mindset that Smartsheet's trying to empower us to get work done is very appealing and something that's easy to sell in a sense. Now, I'm curious though, because with Smartsheet, you know, how much did your career, whereas you said you were with some big companies and, you know, just to throw some of the logos for people, companies like Nortel, CA Technologies, Juniper, I mean, these are massive organizations. Was that an appealing part for you in terms of coming into Smartsheet? Like, did you want to come to a company that was going to work with enterprises? Because I also associate Smartsheet like anyone can use it, like anyone can pretty much start and use it. So how did you assess the type of market that you wanted to serve? Yeah, you know, I don't think I ever have thought about um, a career path so much as serving a market. It's more about what are the most interesting and emerging business models. And so, you know, there was a there was a piece of Nortel, for instance, back in the day. It was like everyone knows the internet, the power of the internet. But it was trying to get into, you know, a pretty interesting space in, in, in routing and switching and just had a to being a challenger brand against a big category giant. That's interesting. I'd always thought I'd rather work at Pepsi than Coke. Do you know what I'm saying? It's just right. so, so much more fun to have this thing that you're trying to tackle. And so in, in Nortel's world, it was, you know, the, you know, it was Cisco perhaps, uh, you know, in, in Juniper, I just felt like, ah, to me, it was a business model of innovators who were trying to disrupt an existing you know, internet model that frankly they had helped create or trying to get it to the next chapter. And so that was more about choosing disruptors and, and innovators, people who made their product and woke up every day and thought, if I don't go to work and figure out how to better invent, progress and, and, and innovate this product, then the world is not going to get what it deserves. And I thought, now that's, that's fascinating to work with people on that kind of a mission and, and had that kind of belief in their product. So that was the appeal to wanting to work with a company like Juniper. And then, you know, with CA, it was, uh, okay, the, the shift from hardware to software. And here's a company that acquires technology uh, and then assembles them together and, and stitches it into portfolio plays. And and I thought, well, that's, you know, super interesting as well. Very, very, very different and, and much more into software and, and uh, you know, emerging into SaaS. And, you know, I think with um, Smartsheet, it was a, wow, now here's a, a, a category that needs to be created. Like this is right on the cusp of, um, you know, a, a major pain point that everyone feels in this category is kind of building around it its business model and its go-to-market completely different than I would say, you know, the behemoth, you know, the enterprise tops down. But I thought, how interesting where those two worlds collide, bottoms up and tops down. And, and was, isn't that an interesting uh, business model? Uh, all very different um, business models. Uh, and I think that's probably how I always approach a job. Like, wow, they're, they're doing something that hasn't been done or needs to be rethought. And that's what makes things interesting. Absolutely. I like how you point out that those two ways that we can approach the market, top down, bottom up. I mean, I think of companies like Slack that have done that very well, Dropbox. I mean, we've seen a lot of them and, and it's hard to accomplish. I, I'm wondering, as, as you made your way to this C-level opportunity, I mean, we, we associate the, the CMO, someone who's got to drive demand, drive pipeline. But as you said, also really define the category and, and disrupt and, and point out to the market that opportunity. You know, if, if I look at your career, there's there's no question you've got amazing experience working with massive brands at defining what they are, who they are. How did you round yourself out to to get to that C level and, and understanding the demand element, understanding the product positioning, you know, beyond just that brand play that that's seen in the earlier part of your career? 
I think that's always a, such a, a an interesting not only question but um, how people think about brand and demand, and they think about these as, as very separate entities. I find that they're actually one and the same, and you can't have one without the other. And it's so easy for people to want to park them into separate camps. Like um, when you interview, you're, well, or even you know, when you talk to recruiters, well, which kind of you know CMO are you? Are you a demand CMO or are you a brand CMO? And you're like, like, like I'm, I'm neither. And if I answer that question, I'm either win or lose based on somehow perception that 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 you have. And, and the point is, you, you have to have both. And you know, they have different maybe performance metrics, you know, at the end of the day, but but they're connected in, in completely the discipline uh, of kind of going, what does the market need? How can I uh, fit the need? How can I do it with, uh, you know, a slightly alternative point of view that, that gives me, uh, you know, a differentiation? And then how can I put it out in the world that uh, uh, it, it has ma magnetic effect? It's the same for brand and demand. So to me, it's the, the, the thinking part of it. If you can get your, adjust the mindset of, of all the tactics that are going to be executed out of it and actually kind of, kind of think of the, the, the problem you're trying to solve instead of you know, the tactics. I think we love in any job in marketing, somehow we immediately start going to the tactics. I, I think of they're the, the same, um, and maybe it's that thought process that's helped me to answer your question. Absolutely, no, I, I understand. I, I think you're right. I mean, you know, and I'm guilty of that too. When I meet with marketers, and I try and I try and read them on one side or the other, versus we really want to find people who can straddle the two and and care about what brand perception that they've got out there. One of the things that you know we talked about for a while at our company was this idea of building a machine. Right? And, and we want to build the, this perfect demand machine with multiple steps. And one day I said to the team, I'm like, listen, the machine's great, but we got to make sure it's not pumping out crap, right? Like if, yeah. if we've got a machine that's like pumping out something that people don't care about, then it doesn't matter. We, we yeah. need to all care about the messaging that we're putting out to people. I also think, I, lo I love your notion of the machine, and, but what I find that people do is they go, well, we need a machine for this, a machine for that. A machine, and all, all of a sudden, they built these organizations with a bunch of individual machines pumping out things in individual. It's in a weird way. I think about it like a swimming pool, and you know, when you're in the swimming pool, there are your, your swim lanes, and then when you're a kid, they drop the swim lanes, and there'd be you know open swim, and everybody can you know play sharks versus minnows or, or whatever, and then the swim lanes would go back for the for the adults to swim. <laughs> I feel like we've created these swim lanes. And everyone's operating in their swim lane, and we have lost the ability to connect the swim lanes into a, a swimming pool. And at the end of the day, that's how I think the consumer actually, and, and, and our prospects and our customers, how they, they think about what we do in the totality of a swimming pool and not the individual swim lane. I, I think being able to break down the, the swim lanes is honestly the, the, the role of marketing. Sometimes I call that, you can call it lots of different things. I guess I've never called it chief swimming pool officer. Um, but, but, but I do think of it as knitting. I mean, it is like, how do you work across and pull through, you know, everything into the lane to, to meet a, a wider objective. And it's, um, it's easier said than done. That, that, that's for sure. But to your point about machines, I think we build a lot of separate machines instead of that's a great point. A factory, you know, it's a great point. And you, as you put it, you think about it from the customer lens. Now, the customer doesn't think to themselves, okay, great, I'm a lead right now, and eventually I'm going to be an account 
and eventually, you know, you're going to treat me through customer marketing. They're just going to transition me to this account team when I'm a certain size. I mean, they don't, they don't care. No, or, 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 yeah, exactly. Exactly. As far as they're concerned, I've been a customer for this many years, right? Right. Plain and simple, you know, where I I started learning about the company this long ago. And And I guess your point is that's the opportunity as a CMO is to, get these teams working together. We're going to hit more on that, Anna. We'll take a quick break here on the marketer's journey. We'll be back to talk about the buyer journey and how we figure this all out. Want to improve the buyer journey for your customers and your prospects? Look no further than our presenting sponsor, Uberflip. Named a leader in content experience by G2 and a leader in content activation by Forrester, Uberflip will help you accelerate every buyer journey by creating bingeable experiences that will allow your prospects to consume more content faster. Companies like Trimble, Wiley, and 3M are using Uberflip to power their go-to-market strategies, and we created one just for you. Head to uberflip.com journey to see how Uberflip can help you leverage the power of personalized content experiences. One of the things I find really interesting about Anna's career and now her approach is we often doubt whether we can go into a startup and be effective if we're coming from a large organization. But I think Anna is proving the value and the perspective we get in those large organizations, seeing the challenges to use technology effectively, seeing how broken and siloed some of the different departments are. I myself had that opportunity at the beginning of my career. Now, I didn't stay long in a large organization. It just wasn't for me. But it allowed me to understand the way different companies work and the way silos need to be broken down. I think one of the things that you'll hear Anna talk about throughout this entire episode is the importance of crossing over these lanes and being comfortable to find ways to get to use technology more. As we get deeper into this conversation, you'll hear that. You'll hear about her challenge to marketers to find ways to use their MarTech in ways that go beyond the very 101 version that we may have bought it for in the first place. So Anna, we were just talking about these swim lanes and the idea that, you know, as far as the customer is concerned, they're a customer. Yeah, you know, they just want a continuous experience where they can go wherever they want and find the information they want. And they want to personalize. I know that that's something that, that you believe is really important, you know, the personalization. But how are you getting your team to be personalized, but not freak people like me out when they come to come through the journey? Yeah. So um that is the the question du jour and, and the magic question that's you know uh, out there in the market. Um, it's a couple of things. Um, number one, it's helping everyone understand that um, you know in a weird way, you know, Uber changed everything because the second somebody realized, like ah, you just took all the friction uh, out of the 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 pain of uh, a saga of trying to get a cab, and in one swoop. That redefined basically consumer expectations on any and, and, and everything. And so that means even in B2B marketing and, and in software marketing, and we're selling software, you have to realize that's the mindset of, of the customer that, that, that you're serving. Like they, they don't want friction. They don't want 
okay, and then I'll give you some information. And in 48 hours, uh, you, you will get back to me and blah, blah, blah. They don't want to give you information. They expect that you already know. They expect that maybe they've given you a, a light piece of information, but you're able to figure it out. When I get in the Uber, they know what kind of music I like. I don't have to say, would you please, please turn the radio off? I don't want, I don't like music or I like this kind of music or they already know. It's almost the same thing at Starbucks. It's the same at all the great brands that um, usually more consumer driven brands, but, but they figured out how to meet that expectation of n- number one, where culture intersects now with business. Like there is this frictionless, you know, uh, expectation that is going to be required in your experience. And then number two, you expect me to, to know something uh, about you and you expect to take a small piece of information and, and, and to grow it into something that didn't require me to sit on a 30 minute, you know, a cold call with you or filling out, uh, you know, long forms or, or whatever. So step one is going, can we all agree that this is, we may be B2B marketers, but we're also consumers. So that's what's happening in our, in our daily lives. Like, how does that now, you know, play out in, in, in what we're going to do here at work? Let, let me first a quick question on that. And I, I want to hit on number two, but okay. how do you find the balance there though? Because as we know, even in our consumer lives that you were pointing out, there's certain apps, there's certain websites where we opt in and we're like, track everything because you're going to, you're going to give me something great. But then yeah. there's certain ones where you know, maybe Facebook's been an example in recent years where we're like, okay, you may be tracking too much and delivering me too much personalization without talking about the consumer world where do you think that line is in business to give me information that's valuable but not go too far yeah i think about it as the um for business i think about it as the role of curation and that's really the value that we can bring um to the end user can i curate it just enough that i'm showing up giving you um things that, 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 that may, they may help you. Can I be your, your Sherpa? I know enough about you that I can give you things that might be helpful versus crossing the line, assuming that I already know, uh, uh, I've already made the decision for you that this is what you need and here it is. To me, uh, uh, curation, like uh, uh, let, let me help make it easy for you. Uh, let Don't me solve your problem. Yeah, yeah. I'm no dummy. I know that as soon as you leave my website, you're probably going to go over to Asana's and then you're going to do a price comparison. So can I make it easy for you and just put the price comparison or, right, right there for you? Like there are things that we can do in the name of curating the experience. It isn't like hitting you over the head trying to sell you, but making it easy for you. That's great. No, I, I like that. I, I think uh, you know we did some research recently and we asked. We ask buyers what they expect from personalization. And you'd expect the answer to be like, you know my name, you know my company. But to your point, the the top answer was you can solve my problem. Right. And yeah. and that's the part I think we we forget. So I I, I killed your flow there. So we first said the first step <laughs> is to ultimately understand, you know, the world that people are in. We're in a we're in a world where we expect personalization in our consumer lives. What comes next? Um, MarTech, what is available to us and what are the tools available to us to be able to deliver on that expectation and, and experience? And I think MarTech's so, it's always been interesting, Lord. It's like one of the fastest areas of innovation. So there's always a new tool. So you're always stuck in this, this, this world of um, making the most out of the investments that we already have or integrating with, you know, some kind of new point product, you know, offering that can do, you know, a new, a new fandangle or, or, or whatever, um, and or being able to make the decision that what worked two years ago d- does not 
work two years later and aborting. So I, I think MarTech strategy is is so uh, important and, and critical right now. And also I think being able to to manage your MarTech in, a, in an interesting way, uh, that is what Smartsheet does. I mean, it is, it manages your MarTech. It helps bring together this very, you know, diverse set of tools and have them work in some kind of unison and visibility and connective, like, like uh, you know, some MarTech is, you know, serving, you know, more of the creative content side. Some MarTech is serving the the, the planning and the resourcing side and, uh, you know, some MarTech is publishing and optimization, you know, side. So it's, um, I think, trying to find this rhythm of, of how those things, you know, all, all connect. Uh, I've got another question for you on this one, because I, I, I've heard a lot of different philosophies on owning MarTech or even buying MarTech in the first place. And you know, one of my philosophies in the past has been that we need an owner for each piece. Right. And, and the idea in theory is we need an executive sponsor that trickles down to an administrative owner, a champion. And you start mapping that out for each piece. And that's how, that's how I historically thought about it. Where I'm struggling more recently, and maybe I'm, I'm curious your thoughts, is does that make sense? Because otherwise we end up kind of like with your swim lanes, as you said. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. We got one piece of tech that does this, but doesn't necessarily take into account the next piece. How do you organize your team in terms of MarTech ownership, ensuring that you know all pieces ideally work together? Yeah, well, it is a collaborative role because you're to, to your point that you know different pieces of technology sit in core different you know functions. But you know the, the first part's clearly a, you know a, a vision. If we agree that that's happening in the world, uh, then do we want to build a MarTech stack? That has the ability to, to to meet that world, and that right there now you're you, now you're connecting a vision to a core capability offering, and it's helping you make d- decisions about what you're going to double down in. Um, number two, it, it's trying to get in the swim lanes uh, a consistent set of you know if you're measuring at the right altitude, it also starts to force these things to, together, not just the what can you measure, you know, in, in this piece of technology or this piece, which there's a place for that too, don't get me wrong. But I think you have to go vision of uh, MarTech that can enable the, the reality of wherever you are in a customer expectation. Uh, number two, um, the ability to, how can we measure these pieces end to end? So therefore, how are we going to stitch pieces of, of the MarTech together to ultimately you know, feed, feed a, a measurement and a, and a progression model to, to an end result? And then I guess number three, it's um, just communication. I, to your point, I think every time, well, the MarTech ownership lives in this function or this function, does it get communicated? Does it get talked about? Does it get shared? You know, MarTech is something that's got to be um, deeply trained. And uh, I think sometimes it goes over people's head. You buy something and then they're like, okay, and you bring in some consultants and maybe you know the consultants are doing the the, the standing it up and making it work. And we've lost the discipline of, do we all understand what this thing is capable of and, and our role in it? I just don't think that really spreads deeply. So you actually just gave me a great idea. Like I, I'm realizing even within my own team, how I've got to get MarTech evangelized. And I think part of it's, look, if we're, if we're going to you know invest X amount, let's say in Google, then I want Google showing us what's possible, best of breed. I want to make sure we're going through through the training. Absolutely. If we're gonna, you know, whatever. So I, I, I guess it, there's what what you buy and the, and then how you you know enable what what you've bought into the org. I I used to always tell my team this that uh, you know buying Martech to me is like going to Best Buy, 
and you know you've got all these TVs in front of you, right? That you can't understand why one of them is five thousand dollars and one of them is five hundred dollars. They're 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 all fifty inches, right? And and a lot of us get hooked into buying that five thousand dollar TV or somewhere in between. Personally, I wouldn't buy the five thousand, but you know, and then we bring it home, we put it up on our wall, and we open up. There's two guidebooks inside there. There's this the quick start one where in five steps you're watching TV. And then there's the guide where you can optimize all the features that were in that $5,000 price tag. The reality is we all go the quick start guide because we just want to start using it and, and we don't get beyond right. the, this idea of what can I do as a quick win. And I think to your point, Anna, you know what, what more marketing teams and, and leadership teams need to push us towards is this opportunity to bring the vendor in, to challenge us, and to get us to use it for every feature we bought it for, right? Or every functionality, every use case. And, and that's, you know, I, I personally think that's where we're going to see in the long run, which MarTech tools remain part of a stack and which ones kind of come and go, as you said, in the beginning of your career. Well, I, I love that you said that because you're making me think so many interesting thoughts, but I could not agree more. But is that any different than what um, a, a an enterprise platform does for a living? I mean, our, our job in selling an enterprise platform and its capabilities to go start here, start with this use case, and you're going to get a lot of success. And then let's then let's show you the journey, which is now tying the buyer's journey into the customer journey. Now let me show. Then then you can go on and take on these capabilities. And then the next thing that most people do, but I think would be great for your vertical, then you take on this and you and you show them the the, the growth and the trajectory, but you sequence it. It's how you bring lifetime value to any product. And so you're right, Martech. They better get jiggy on that because um, uh, that that is the how you're going to get the most out of someone's platform or not, which probably brings me to a point that we haven't talked about. Um, I think point number three is the the notion of usage. You know, there, there's one thing to to meet someone's experience, another thing to 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 have the technologies that enable it, and then the the third thing is exactly what we were just playing off of of uh, Steve Wozniak. The most powerful technology in the world is the one that people actually use. So it almost doesn't matter what all the capabilities are, to your point about the television, all the features sets, and all the things you can do if nobody uses it. When you have usage, that's where you get virality, both internally, and that's how you get your teams, oh, it's so easy to use, or we're all using it. I mean, that's that's bottoms-up marketing, by the way, which is how we started the very phase one with. It's like that's the difference between bottoms-up and top-down. It all comes to usage, virality. I, we're using it, using it. Everyone can use it, and the more usage you're getting out of anything, you know that that's where you get, you know, uh, adoption and, and adaptability. It's great, great advice, and it has been uh, a great chat. We're going to keep you around because we want to get to know a little bit about you outside of work. A short break here on the marketer's journey, and right back with Anna. Thinking a lot about what Anna is talking about here, I think the idea that we have to think about with our solutions is how do we get people to use more of it? One of the words she used earlier is this idea of removing friction. And I think of different platforms, and I, I may have mentioned Slack earlier in this episode. I think Slack's a great example of one where they find a way into the organization, but it spreads. It spreads so naturally, and it spreads to a point where we're all using it in different ways. Imagine someone trying to rip Slack or Microsoft Teams or whatever you do out. Yes, they could replicate some of those one-to-one -one chats 
that we have, but how do they build all those other channels, all the other ways that we use and communicate with that solution? Now think about the same with your platform. You may have an in, you may have a foot in the door, but imagine if you could make this something that everyone used, that everyone got value out of. When you do that, you've got more buy-in, you've got more advocacy. And as Anna said, you're gonna have much better lifetime value from every customer because it's not tied to a contact, it's tied to the customer as a whole. So Anna, we got a couple more minutes together here, and I want to understand as you're busy in your career, you're busy as a CMO with a company that's growing so quickly as we talked about, how do you make time to disconnect? How do you make time for yourself, for family? How do you find that balance personally? Oh, Randy, teach me. <laughs> <laughs> it is not something I can say that I mastered. It's probably my my biggest weakness because you... Um, you can love what you do, and you can also be so absorbed that you you, you do lose perspective of, of the other things that that matter. And um, little things I was trying to do in the beginning of all of this was okay, go outside, walk the dogs, try to see things from a different perspective, try to get nature, try to uh, you know, just things that would interrupt the the back to backness that has become COVID work. I mean, you are. WebExing, Zooming, Blue Genie, you know, whatever you're doing, you're doing it 14, 15 hours a day. And so there's nothing in between. And you're also doing it in more awkward time zones because you're not physically represented in somebody else's time zone when you're doing physical meetings. I mean, you have to now stretch these, you know, these time zones where everybody can sort of be respectful of each other's time, which means you're in this very long stretch of East Coast, West Coast, and it never really ends. And so um, I, I don't have it handled well. Uh, uh, this is, you know, maybe the, the, the couch session of this interview. Like I'm, I'm <laughs> Randy, help me figure it out. It's an interesting point that you bring up though. I mean, the, the, the idea of flexibility, which is what a lot of this remote work has allowed us in ways has removed our downtime because as we are flexible, we are now flexible to everyone and in turn, we're never turning off. Yeah. You know, I guess it's so honestly, we're sitting here and I'm, I'm doing an interview, um, not in, in my state or even in my, you know, my, my office or my, my dwelling. So in, a, in an interesting way, I guess maybe I have figured out how to do this. So I'm, I live in North Carolina, I work in Seattle and I'm sitting in Florida right now here for a daughter's horse show. Somehow I, I am figuring out how to make the time for my children, for my, for my work, for my family, for everyone. And it just revolves differently. So I guess maybe the answer to your question is we have to reshape the framing and the compartmentalization of, of work. And I think the fact that I could sit at a horse show and still be working and engaged, but then also able to transition and be engaged in, in her life at that moment where, where it matters most is what is wonderful about this um, doesn't mean that it's easy, though. Well, I, I don't know that it's ever going to get easy, but the flexibility does allow for multiple worlds to combine, which it didn't before. Think about it, because before I would have been on a plane and in Seattle and, and, and working in Seattle, which meant I could not have even been at the horse show or I couldn't have been at the, the parent teacher conference. I could not have been uh, with my husband uh, to meet with the, the tax accountants or whatever. It's like it's those things didn't 
collide. Now they collide. So I guess we have to just find new ways to um, to switch between. I think. Yeah, That's, yeah, yeah. Like be, being learning how to be present in wherever you're, you're switching. Yeah. This is great, and a great advice, great self realization there as well. And thank you for everything that you shared with us today. Everyone's journey is a little bit different. And I think you and many of the guests we've had on this podcast are proof of that. If you're listening in, you're probably thinking about what your journey is, what it's going to be. I hope one day you get to share it with us on this podcast. Until next time, a big thank you to Anna Griffin. This has been The Marketer's Journey. You've been listening to the Marketer's Journey podcast. Big thanks to our sponsors at Uberflip, who help you fuel demand generation with content for an accelerated buyer journey. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify at uberflip.com slash podcast or anywhere you listen to podcasts.